Welcome to episode 250 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. For several years now, carbon tax-friendly economists and analysts have been pressuring the Government of Canada to implement carbon contracts for difference as a way of encouraging private investment in emissions reductions. Late in December, the first contract was signed between Calgary-based Entropy, a carbon capture and storage developer, and the Canada Growth Fund, the federal government's $15 billion fund designed to support uh, clean technology companies in Canada. To unravel the mysteries of carbon contracts and this deal, I'm joined by Brendan Frank, who is the policy development and, and analysis lead for Clean Prosperity. So welcome to the interview, Brendan. Thanks for having me back, Markham. Well, good. It's good to talk to you again. We haven't uh, we haven't chatted for a while, and uh, generally, I think because uh, from from where I sit, the the carbon tax uh, hasn't cropped up uh, on, or hasn't appeared on my radar as much as it has in uh, previous years. But this deal between Entropy and the Canada Growth Fund has now put it back on the radar. So I think. For the purposes of this interview, because our our uh, our audience has become much more national and international than it was uh, even a year ago, I want to start with the basics. And so, let can you provide an overview of what the industrial emitter carbon tax is, particularly in Alberta? Absolutely. So, Canada, as uh, I'm sure your listeners know, has a price on carbon. Um, but it actually has two separate elements to that price on carbon. There's the retail carbon price, which is what consumers pay at, at the pump and on home heating and so forth. And then there's the industrial carbon price. And these are large emitters who produce, in some jurisdictions, it's it's 50 uh, kilotons um, of, of greenhouse gas emissions a year. Um, the, the threshold varies depending on, on the jurisdiction. But these are the heavy manufacturers, cement, steel, aluminum, oil and gas, pulp and paper, petrochemicals, and so forth. And they face a, a separate system. Um, in most jurisdictions, it's called output-based pricing. And this is a system designed with competitiveness, the economic competitiveness of those industries in mind. If they were to be exposed to the full carbon price, it would make economic sense for a lot of these facilities to shut in and cease operations. And we don't want that. So they pay a portion of the uh, the carbon price. Um, and in exchange, they receive what are known as output-based allocations to address those, those competitiveness pressures. And the, the net result is that they face a, a high marginal price on carbon but the average carbon costs are low enough that they don't actually have to um, you know, shut, shut in industry or reduce their output. So my understanding of paying a high carbon uh, high pr uh, carbon price on the marginal production is that every new barrel gets taxed at 100% of the, uh, whatever the carbon price is, it's $65 a ton at the, at the moment. And- uh, the other production uh, gets taxed at 20%, 10%. And so when you average them all out, for instance, uh, Suncor, which was one of the big oil sands companies, paid last year, I think in their annual report, I read that they paid like 47 cents a barrel on average across all of their production. 
Uh, and have, am I, is that basically how output-based allocations work? So it depends on the sector. Different sectors face very different competitiveness pressures. Some can shoulder more carbon pricing than, than others. But yes, the, the net effect is that the, the price of carbon um, is, is low overall, but each incremental ton of emissions you produce faces a, a higher carbon price. And there are actually two elements to that system as well. We have the, the headline carbon price, which is currently $65 a ton, rising to $80 a ton in April. But there are also credits in these markets that uh, emitters can, can produce to fulfill what is known as their compliance obligation. And those generally trade at a discount to the headline carbon price. Okay. So if uh, Suncor is producing 800,000 barrels of oil a day, and it's then paying 10 or 20% of the carbon price, but the 800,001 barrel is going to be taxed at $65 a ton or $80 a ton in the, in the coming months, correct? Depending on the emissions intensity, yes, we, you can, we can take it that example and run with it. Okay, just as an example, so keep it simple for for the listeners. And then there are credits that are created. So where are those credits uh, traded? Um, in the there's a Canadian carbon market, there's an Alberta carbon market. This is something that's a little, I mean, it, it just doesn't get a lot of publicity. I'll be honest, I don't understand it that well. So maybe you could give us some of the basics of Canadian and Alberta carbon markets. Sure. So we, why don't we zoom in on Alberta for this example? Alberta's tier market is actually the template for the federal system. Many other provinces have copied Alberta's approach. So each facility that is covered by the Technology Innovation and Emissions Reduction Regulation, also known as tier in Alberta, um, they face what is called a performance benchmark. It's basically an emissions intensity benchmark, your total emissions divided by your total output. And that benchmark falls every single year. So there's a downward pressure and incentive for facilities to reduce emissions. The best performers that are performing below their benchmark generate credits that they can then sell to other emitters that are operating above the benchmark. And these credits have a monetary value and they actually can help inform the business case for a lot of low carbon investments, both for existing emitters and for new facilities that are considering whether to site in Alberta or for whether to site in Texas, for example. Now, it used to be uh, when the output based allocation and the industrial emitter tax was first introduced uh, six, seven years ago, there was a, a benchmark and for the industry and everybody had to uh, that was uh, the basis upon which uh, the credits were issued and then the uh, current government uh, or the current party in government form of government brought in they changed it so that it was by facility which is a fairly different fairly uh, significant change because in the oil sands in particular, and I, I keep bringing up the oil sands because they're literally 10 or 11%, maybe even 12% of Canada's national emissions. And oil and gas in Canada makes up 26% of national emissions. So this uh, it's a sector we cover, so I, I keep coming back to them as an example. So in this 
in this case, um, in the oil sands, there's a huge variation between uh, emissions intensity per barrel between projects. There are 22 projects. And at the, the most, the lowest one is 37 kilograms of CO2 equivalent per barrel. The highest is up between 140 kilograms and 160 kilograms. You know, it's these older projects and, you know, that maybe aren't, aren't as efficient. They're low cost. They make a lot of money for the producers, but, you know, uh, they create a lot of emissions at the same time. So the way this system would work is the producers that are have the lower emissions intensity, say 37 kilograms, then generate a number of credits depending on what their emissions intensity threshold is set at. They then can trade those to the comp the producer that is has the more the higher emissions intensity barrel. Have I got that right? Broad strokes, yes. And there are definitely <laughs> trade definitely trade-offs between taking a facility level approach versus a sector level approach. But what is more important than taking a the, the distinction between those two is that the benchmarks fall in a predictable way over the long term. Right. Fair enough. And um the there are plenty of fans of this system, and I'm thinking of people like uh, Professor Trevor Tome, who's a, a, an economist at the University of Calgary, big fan of, of this. But there are others who are not, and, and I'm not particularly, because there hasn't been enough incentive for the oil and gas companies to lower their emissions. They have had technologies like solvent substitution in, um, uh, in the SAG-D part of the oil sands industry uh, for years now. And they've been very slow to uh, to implement it. We're just seeing it now in 2024 start rolling out. And I remember doing interviews with Synovus and their VP of technology back in like 2016, 2017. You know, they're, so this system has not created enough incentive in the past to, to force the oil sands producers to bring down their emissions more quickly. That's my general take on it. Would you agree or disagree with that? So I think we could agree that the stringency of the system, where the benchmarks are set and how quickly they're falling, is inadequate, both for meeting Canada's 2030 emissions targets and on the path to net zero. That doesn't mean we have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. The architecture of the system is good. We think that the federal government missed an opportunity in 2022 to ensure that the benchmarks fall faster, both in tier and in carbon pricing systems across Canada. Next opportunity will be in 2026, and we think the federal government should seize that. Um, and we also think that Alberta you know, really should consider increasing the stringency of its own system in the interim, be a little bit more dynamic with it. Um, you know, the idea that we have these five-year review periods, which means we have five, maybe six more between now and, and 2050, um, just isn't, um, we're not meeting the moment. And and a background for listeners, uh, in this case, the federal government insists that every province have an industrial emitter carbon tax. And if the province comes and designs its own, as Alberta did, then the federal government signs an equivalency agreement with the province. And so this was done. I thought it was actually the last one was in 2023, but you're saying it's in 2022 or was in 2022? 
the uh, the details were finalized at the end of 2022. Okay. And came into force in 2023. Ah, that's what it is. Okay, fair enough. And the, the reason this is important is because this time around, the federal government pressured the provincial government to increase the stringency, not by a whole lot, but they did, but they did increase it. And and your argument, of course, and I would agree with this, is is that they it should have been more stringent, and we should we they should it should be reviewed more often, uh, and the stringency's got to go up. Otherwise, uh, as you say, we're you know Canada's not going to meet its its twenty thirty uh, climate commitment. Now, with that, all of that background as context, what is a carbon contract per difference? So. We can take it back to to the benchmarks for a moment. Um, currently in Alberta, the benchmarks for facilities is falling at two percent a year. Our analysis at Clean Prosperity has shown that they need to fall by about five percent a year between now and twenty thirty to prevent massive oversupply of credits in the market. If credits are oversupplied, credits are cheaper. And that is an outcome we want to avoid if we want to make sure that the market continues to bind emitters and provide that incentive. So a carbon contract for difference is an instrument um, that will guarantee the price of carbon for an emitter in the future, in a given year, at a specific strike price, it's called. So the government uh, could sign a deal at any strike price and ensure that a particular emitter has the confidence they need to make investments that will allow them to monetize the credits that those investments generate in the carbon market. Right. And if they don't have that confidence, then the, and because frankly, uh, policy changes, right? You change government, you change a policy, and then industry has to adapt to it. And they don't like that. They would just yeah. prefer, yeah, they want policy certainty. Yes. And there are two types of risk that they're reacting to right now, right? One is the stroke of pen risk. The, the risk that a the current government or a future government could change the price path for carbon, that it, it somehow deviates from $170 per ton in 2030 as intended. And the other is this oversupply risk, which we think is actually much more immediate. And we're actually seeing low carbon investors sitting on the sidelines while governments sort this, this out. Right now, there's just not enough confidence to, to justify some of these low carbon investments that require a carbon price of hundred dollars a ton, one hundred and fifty dollars a ton. I should point out, and we'll get into this uh, in in more detail when we talk about the entropy deal, which is around carbon capture, utilization, and storage. But uh, in September, I had a, the opportunity to interview uh, the CEO of one of the the companies that supplies CCUS technology. You know, basically manages the project, and I asked him at what point is CCUS uh, competitive and in the in the oil sands market and he said two hundred dollars a ton that's where we that's where the uh, current cost of ccus you've got to, you have to have the equipment to capture it at source you've got to then uh collect it and send it out to a pipeline and then the pipeline has to take it to some location and and then it has to be stored underground and sequestered underground all of that together requires a carbon price of $200 a ton, in his opinion. So that suggests that that if a hunt 200 is needed, then we're only at 80. Even if you have a contract for difference, which then, you know, we'll, we'll peg it at some 
number, uh, and I think in the case this deal, it's $86, it still would seem not enough to encourage those companies that are sitting on the sidelines to now get in and, and start building. Yeah, so carbon capture is, is an interesting technology because it's actually a suite of technologies. It's not just for oil and gas. We can also find applications across cement, petrochemicals, a whole range of, of other sectors. And the costs in each of those sectors is different. The cost curves, how quickly we can expect the costs to fall as those technology scales will also vary. And um, Entropy needed uh, a strike price of, of $86.50 to make their technology work. We want to crowd in the cheapest producers. I have no doubt that there are producers out there or carbon capture suppliers out there that, that are asking for $200 a ton. But we don't necessarily need those companies to succeed for carbon capture to succeed. We want these suppliers to compete for the lowest possible cost. And Entropy took a strike price that is in line with where the carbon price will be next year so it's it doesn't necessarily follow that uh 200 a 200 carbon price is is essential in this case oh okay that that's a good clarification i i wasn't uh i wasn't aware of that i just assumed that there was a price uh that was you know would be we would need to get to in order to make it economic, make CCUS economic. Turns out that's not the case. There are high cost suppliers and low cost suppliers. That's a very good point. And now before we get into the entropy deal, I have one more context question for you. And it's a, it's a one that that's becoming a bigger and bigger issue for me as I spend time uh, interviewing experts and reading uh, reports about the global energy transition and peak oil demand and peak gas demand, because it seems to be coming quicker. And I interviewed the chief economist of the Canadian Energy Regulator about the last their, their net zero scenario uh, modeling, which is the first time they've ever done it. And I was really surprised to see that the, uh, the CER uh, had the oil sands, you know, like in kind of a net zero scenario, the oil sands, uh, production declined quite a bit. And he says it's because the cost of the uh, uh, compliance, uh, uh, emissions reduction compliance is so large that it makes them uneconomic. And I'm wondering how this carbon contract for difference plays into that scenario. Does it lower the cost to the company? So, you know, producers like Suncor might, be, might remain uh, economic and competitive in the future? It can if there is long-term demand for the credits that they generate in, in the carbon market. Um, the, the, the tier system, in Alberta's case, is indifferent to the level of production in many ways. What it is most interested in is getting a barrel of oil out of the ground with the fewest emissions possible. And Canada's the demand for Canadian oil and gas will be determined far more by international trends and patterns than anything we can do with domestic policy. So if we want to ensure that, and um, in Alberta's case, if Alberta wants to ensure that demand for uh, Canadian oil and gas remains robust, it's probably in their interest to ensure that they get to a net zero barrel of oil as quickly as possible so that they have a more desirable product in, in international markets. Yeah, that's a point that uh, economist Kevin Byrne of S&P Global has made in a couple of interviews, is that the oil and gas markets, global oil and gas markets, are looking for ways to price in emissions. 
you know they're they're at the very early stages there are little pilot projects going on but the uh, the market knows that this is the direction that policymakers are going that customers are going and and they're trying to figure out some way to to price it so the time timeliness of this is is important i want to raise just one more quick question and that is i can see like in cement for example or steel making the the likelihood of those industries being around in 30 years which would <clears throat> i think probably be the the life expectancy of a lot of these assets you know the carbon uh, capture uh, assets uh because cement plants you know they're not they're, we're always going to need cement and we're always going to need steel and and so on but i worry that we're pouring a tremendous amount of money. And the Pathways Alliance, which is the trade association of the oil sands producers, estimates for their part of the industry only $75 billion to get to net zero by 2050. And uh, two-thirds of that will be carbon capture utilization and storage at a cost of $50 billion. And I worry that we're going to put a... The, the Canada is going to spend a lot of money subsidizing that for an industry that could wind up with significant stranded assets as early as the 2030s. And I just, I'm, I'm curious about your view on that. Yeah, so in terms of the uh, the need for carbon capture, um, it's, it's pretty evident. We need to figure out now whether or not it works. And if it doesn't, then we need to shift to plan B as quickly as possible. Uh, the, the oil sands are public assets. Um, the Canadians benefit from, from the oil that's extracted as from there as well, it makes sense to cost share the uh, the decarbonization of, of that public asset. Okay, that that is grist for another conversation. So we're not going to pursue that any further. And I think we've provided uh, a lot of really important context uh, about how the industrial emitter tax works, how carbon markets work in Canada. So tell me about the entropy deal with the uh, Canada Growth Fund? Sure. So over the past 18 months or so, the federal government has stood up an organization called the Canada Growth Fund, an arms length agency that is making investments to unlock low carbon growth in Canada. Uh, the fall economic statements um, tabled by Minister Freeland in November announced that 7 billion of the Canada Growth Fund's $15 billion capitalization is for carbon contracts for difference. And the Growth Fund signed its first deal with a company called Entropy. It's an Alberta-based carbon capture firm uh, in December. And it's a deal whereby the Growth Fund is promising to buy a specific volume of carbon credits that entropy expects to generate from a specific uh, project, natural gas uh, project in Alberta, Glacier Phase 2. And the growth fund will guarantee the price of carbon at $86.50 per ton for 15 years. Once the project comes online, construction time is expected to be somewhere around two to three years. So this is a, a deal that entropy can take to the bank and can count on through 2040 and as as such it makes uh, it makes the deal economic i'm i'm curious about some of the language that entropy used in its press release 
which is where I went to get some of the background uh, for this uh, for this agreement. And they refer to it as uh, an investment in in their company. So is it an actual investment where the Canada Growth Fund gets gets equity, gets shares in the company? Or is it a guarantee of the price, uh, the amount of money that the Canada Growth Fund is making available to purchase credits? It's both, actually. There's a there's an equity investment paired with a uh, a carbon contract for difference. And it's essentially both are a bet on the growth funds part that Entropy's technology is viable, will scale, and presents significant export opportunities. They're trying to capture both the upside of, of the future of, of carbon pricing in Canada, as well as the upside of, of entropy. Okay, so if the carb, if the Canada Growth Fund purchase purchases um, two hundred million dollars, whatever the the value of the uh, whatever it costs them to purchase these these credits, uh, what do they do with them? So they have options. They can hold on to them, the expectation that the price will rise. They can sell them back into the market or, and we think that this, this option is actually crucial to building what is ultimately a broad-based program of contracts for difference, not just these one-off deals, but something that any emitter can, can access, is to crowd in third parties to, to share these the, the downside risk with a bank or an institutional investor in exchange for some some of the upside. They could they could sell that contract to an institutional investor at a premium, or they could cost share so that they don't have to book the full liability. There, there are a lot of different permutations here, but essentially CGF is making a bet that they can get more from these carbon credits that they've promised to offtake from Entropy um, than what they paid for them. So this is not a government subsidy fund uh, so much as it is a, and I'm not even sure because finance is not my my bailiwick, but it's, it's a more like a, a financial uh, enabler uh, by purchasing by purchasing uh, credits at a fixed price and then selling them back or holding them while the, the price goes up, which it will then get revenue from, which it can then put into back into the fund and and do this again with other companies. Have I got that correct? Yes, the idea is to generate a return and to continue to recycle those returns that they generate back in, into the economy. It's going to be a mix of equity, debt, carbon contracts for difference, um, and the the mix in any given deal will depend on a company's particular circumstances and the risk appetite that the growth fund has. So how important is this uh, deal between Entropy and the Canada Growth Fund in the global context? I mean, is this is this a precedent-setting deal? It is for Canada. Canada is not the first country to use carbon contracts for difference. The UK has has rolled them out. Germany is having some success with them, but it provides proof of concept. It shows that this type of deal is is possible. That strike prices can be quite low, particularly in in the carbon capture industry, um, and it provides a template and learnings that CGF and the government of Canada and the provinces, if they want to, can can build on to deploy more of these contracts. So are, are we going to expect, or should we expect, uh, that as these kinds of deals are are struck, uh, is that we're going to have a more robust market in Canada, particularly in Alberta, 
uh, for carbon credits? So there are a lot of moving parts with the growth fund still, and it's not clear that their capitalization is, is high enough to actually secure this, this market confidence that we are talking about. Everyone needs to believe that the carbon price is going to continue to rise. We probably can't accomplish that with just a series of, of one-off deals, um, like the one that was, was struck with entropy. We would love to see movement towards a broad-based program of contracts for difference that is available to any emitter guarantees a, a specific strike price. And that crowding in of, of all of these different sectors um, will basically secure that, that confidence. Everyone will believe that governments will increase stringency over time um, as and limiting the, the, the potential payouts under these, these contracts, the more contracts are issued. Okay. When, now there's been a, a you know a lot of controversy about the carbon tax uh, in Canada and the Liberal government of Justin Trudeau uh, brought it in uh, and they're big supporters of it and the opposition which is well ahead in the polls right now and looks like you know the election were held today they would form government uh, elections not next federal elections not till 2025 so. But what happens if a situation where a new party or a different party forms a new government and says, nah, we don't like the carbon tax. We're going to ax that. We're going to, we're going to kind of a worst case scenario for carbon tax proponents. What would that policy change mean for contract, you know, this, these kinds of deals and, and for carbon markets? So in terms of what it means for contracts for difference, any deal that is signed is essentially future-proof. We don't think there's any legal mechanism available to, to break the contracts. Um, in terms of what it means for the retail carbon price, um, that's pretty easy to, to repeal at the federal level. But eight out of 10 provincial systems are run by the provinces, including the big five of Alberta, BC, Saskatchewan, Ontario, and Quebec. So those industrial systems would would stay in place. The question is, what's the stringency look like in that scenario? And that's an open-ended question that we can speculate about, but really don't have any insight into at this time. Okay. What if the, the, a, the a new federal government uh, ended the uh, carbon contract for difference? Uh, uh, I'm not sure what to call it. I was going to call it a service, but it's really, really not that. But what if they got rid of the Canada Growth Fund and there was nobody, there was no player to finance these kind of deals, effectively ending federal support for for contract for differences? Uh, what role, what effect would that have? Yeah, this is getting a little bit too deep into the legal territory for me to provide a definitive answer, but um, I, I think they would open themselves up to lawsuits. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So the idea we'll is that it, it looks like this, this kind of a setup uh, is about as, as much security as a federal government can offer industry. And, uh, and hopefully when government changes as they do, uh, then the, the new, the incoming government would honor those deals and not, not upset the, not upset industry. Uh, so if, if you're going to wrap, wrap up our conversation, Brendan, about this, 
about the Andropy deal, about contract for contracts for difference, about where we're going with the the carbon price. Um, is this a is this a really significant uh, agreement, uh, or is it the first step on a, a long journey? The first step, but it's a big one. We would ultimately like to see the government move towards a, a broad based program. Contracts for difference can be used to unlock these specific projects and these specific technologies, but their potential is is far greater than that. And we would like to see the federal government wield them and the provinces for that matter, wield them to their full potential. Well, Brandon, thank you very much. I understand contracts for difference and industrial emitter carbon pricing much better than I than I did before we started this conversation. I'm still not sure I've, I've got a good handle on it. There's a lot of complexities and moving parts here, as you pointed out, that make it a little tough to for we uh, poor laymen uh, to wrap our heads around it. But I understand it a little lot better, and hopefully our list, my listeners do as well. So, Brandon, thank you very much for this. Thank you. Thank you.